This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. You know, most advertising professionals pride themselves on being ahead of trend. I've actually been ahead of trend on many things. Fantasy football, Wu-Tang, pretzel buns, and Lululemon men's underwear, which has been my personal undergarment of choice since 2009. Check out the new Always In Motion Boxer, made with silky and supportive Modal fabric, available in three packs. Find them in Lululemon stores or online at lululemon.com. Welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang, Chief Creative Officer at Momentum. My guest today, Spencer Kramer, CEO at J. Walter Thompson Atlanta, soon to be Wonderman Thompson Atlanta. Spencer has had an incredible and varied background. He was Vice President of Marketing, first at ESPN, where he oversaw all creative activities for their $500 million marketing group. Then at Virgin America, where he helped build the airline's brand and communication strategy from the ground up and design its pioneering in-flight entertainment system. In 2007, Spence jumped to the agency world, joining Wyden Kennedy Portland as global account director of Nike, overseeing teams across seven offices on the brand's longstanding Just Do It campaign. Wyden then promoted him to run the global Coca-Cola business, managing the agency's work for Coke, Diet Coke, Coke Zero, and Powerade, and leading its winning pitch for the 2014 FIFA World Cup sponsorship. Spence left Wyden in 2014 to become Crispin Porter Bogusky's first ever global managing director. After spending a year there contributing to the winning pitch for the Global Infinity account, Spence relocated to Atlanta, where he worked as a freelance consultant before JWT made him CEO in 2016. Over a 20-year career straddling the client and agency side, he's been at the center of famous work and key cultural moments time and time again. This is Spence Kramer and I talking to ourselves. Where are you from and what did your parents do? From Perrysburg, Ohio, uh, between Toledo and Bowling Green. My old man worked in a family business called Crush Proof Tubing. Had a, it was a, uh, basically a component part for engines that his father invented. So we're an Ohio family. His dad's from Cleveland. My dad's from Cleveland. Grew up with a Browns, you know, Jim Brown jersey in my crib kind of thing. Um, my mom's an actress, so I grew up with my dad. They were married until I was 10, and then my mom sort of flitted away to New York and decided that she wanted to pursue her dream. They got divorced, so we would go right. visit her. Yeah, and my dad remarried and second wife, second, uh, a fourth child, my sister Catherine. So, um, yeah, typical kind of small town USA. I played on the high school basketball team, played high school golf. It's, you know, it's just like a... Uh, little Hoosiers in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Did your mom ever appear in any commercials? Lots. Commercials. She did a couple Law & Order. She mostly theater, though. She did, like, Annie on Broadway for a while. She did road companies of fucking, I don't know, Annie Get Your Gun and Oklahoma and Wonderful Town and... Um, I don't know, stuff like that. So she, you know, she made it. And then late in her life, later, she's still alive, but later in her life in her 60s, transitioned away from being on stage into voiceover acting and did that until just a couple years ago. She's uh, a snowbird now, sort of half and half Upper West Side and Deerfield Beach, Florida. Like she is like taking the Jew train up and down between <laughs> Upper West and, and South Florida. She calls herself the worst Jew in America, but I'm, I definitely claim that title, obviously. Have you ever hired her for anything? Uh, she's auditioned for us for stuff. Yeah, I think we did work together one time. Uh, I can't remember. Maybe it was something in ESPN, but I felt a total, obviously, conflict of interest on that. Sure. What did what did uh, twelve year old Spence want to be when he grew up? The the next Mark Price? Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. At the time, uh, man, 
what did I want to do? I I was really into, yeah, I was really into basketball. I that I, you know, uh, Northwest Ohio is cold as shit in the winter and hot as shit in the summer, and you know, it's just a it's a kind of a classic American town. So we just followed the seasons. I played hockey growing up. We played a, we played outside all the time, lived in that kind of neighborhood where, you know, when it got to dusk, my dad would whistle as loud as he could and everybody would just sort of go to their respective homes. Um, I don't think I had a dream. It certainly wasn't advertising and marketing. I don't think I even knew what that was in 1977 when I was 12, you right. know. Um, I just wanted to have fun. I didn't really have many dreams. Maybe a doctor. I don't know. You know, I was always make your parents proud. Yeah, yeah, I was always decent in school, so I figured that that was what success looked like. I love when I interview somebody and they tell me that they were, you know, they were compulsive about high school sports because I was like that as well. And it's it instantly tells you, like, okay, so you know how to be part of a team, you know how to give all of yourself to something that's bigger, you know how to play a role. Yeah, um, you know, like there's. You look back and there's like heartbreaking wins and losses when you're the kid and, you know, it makes you teary-eyed. And then you get older and you forget the wins and losses and you go like, gosh, I was learning lessons about how to be an adult that Just, were unbeknownst yeah. to me at the time. I missed a layup to win the league championship. Tried to tried to do a little like a kind of a little shake and bake with my left Should hand. Should I go get a box of clean? I'm seeing you. There's something the in your eye right now. Missed a layup to advance to districts. Not the states, to the, the sectional championship. But to districts, we uh, I missed it. Is that your sliding doors moment? What That's, how your life would have changed <laughs> had you not had you made that layup? Yeah, uh, you know, the next year though, I made a three foot birdie putt to win the league championship for my golf team though, with my whole team surrounding me. So there was a little bit of tit for tat there. Okay, I'm going to skip about a decade of your life it. here, and I'm going to say right. you join ESPN in 1999. Yep. What are your uh, initial memories of arriving at? ESPN headquarters. We just talked about it. I'm going to assume that ESPN was as formative to your childhood as, as it was to mine. Um, and maybe how might someone have described young, bushy-tailed Spence Kramer when you walked through the door at ESPN? God, just the luckiest man on the face of the earth. It was It was the... There have been two seminal moments in my career, the the ESPN job and the Widening Kennedy job in Portland. Yeah. And they were related to one another. Um I had worked in advertising in New York for a while, on and off. Uh, had done some not-for-profit stuff. I moved to Los Angeles, worked in that, chased a girl, worked in advertising there. Got really kind of jaded and thought, you know, this is not for me. So I taught school for a year. I left the business altogether. Yeah. And then found out that Leanne Daly, who is a friend, uh, was hiring a director of advertising at ESPN. And I thought, you know... If there's one job that I would want in the world, and if there's one job that every 30-year-old male sports fan in this country would want, would be the director of advertising at ESPN. So I called her and I said, I really want to interview for this thing. The, the, the lasting memory that I had at ESPN was before I even started, which was a guy named John Walsh, who was the executive editor, kind of an older, white-haired, nearly blind man, um, picked me up in a black car at JFK, uh, he was flying in, I was flying in, picked me up. The two of us sat in the back seat. The interview lasted between the distance of JFK to Bristol. He got out, and then the black car took me back to Manhattan so, to meet with Leanne that night. So my interview was the hour with John Walsh, and I have never been so fucking prepared 
and on my game in that hour as I was with John Walsh that day. Even the driver, when John got out of the car, the driver turned to me and he goes, man, you killed that. Oh, that's great. Oh, it was so great. Because <laughs> he, he was silent the whole time. Yeah. But John Walsh is, you know, a legend yeah. in, in, in sports journalism and in journalism, period. And he asked me some really, really tough questions. But, man, I had, I had my legal pad. I was dialed. So by the time I got there, I was a bushy-tailed but cocky as balls Spence Kramer. I thought I fucking knew everything. And I'll just remember two weeks in, the guy that reported to me, this guy named Jeff Gagne, who's rem- remained a good pal ever since, Keep in mind, I'm his boss. He had been there a year, and he took me aside, and he goes, can I talk to you for a second? I go, yeah, and he goes, you're kind of a dick. <laughs> and I thought... Your thoughts. That's a yeah. hell of a lesson to learn. Yeah. And then uh, and then my, my real sort of come to Jesus moment was when Angie Vieira, who is one of my greatest pals uh, in the world was the managing director of White & Kennedy, our agency back then in New York. I, like, read the riot act to uh, one of her people, like her account exec, her account soup, and she laid into me, uh, and I deserved it. And she was an account person, and I was the client. And I tell you, the ball's on her to do that with me, because I had always thought client's always right, agency's always service, and she was like, I'm not taking that, and and you will never do that again to one of my people. And I think like that, I became a better client. I hope I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the This Is Sports Center campaign had already begun by the time you got there. It was, it was mm-hmm. a few years off the ground. Mm-hmm. I had Hank Perlman on the show last year and, you know, got some of his thoughts on the, the genesis of This Is Sports Center. It's actually a big responsibility. By that time, it's a famous campaign, yeah. but with a lot of legs left, and you were there for... I, know, was, some, running, I was running that yeah. part of the business. I did probably 100 of them yeah. when I was there. Do you have a favorite This Is Sports Center sp- story or a favorite This Is Sports Center spot? Um, yeah, the, my favorite sports center story is there are two of them. One is when Hank and I almost got in a fist fight in front of about 200 people cause he was directing yeah. and he and I had a pretty public disagreement actually. Um, I don't really remember the details other than go fuck yourself. You go fuck yourself. Do your fucking job. You do your fucking job. And then we were fine. Right. right? One was, uh, the other story was we laid down a bunch of Astro turf in, uh, in the, uh, crosswalk the, the jetway kind of area between two buildings and in a bunch of offices and the turf wasn't green enough so uh, we spray painted it but didn't realize that the windows didn't open and so there was all this massively toxic <laughs> paint being green spray paint up and down the halls and people were eyes watering and coughing and noses like they people were like running for the exits yeah. and we just thought maybe this is probably not the greatest idea yeah. this wasn't this wasn't properly probably planned. vetted yeah exactly that was hungry man too you were there you were there at the same time as uh, at espn as chris berman Stu scott dan patrick did you develop any relationship with those guys or did they sort of exist in their own world Half and half. I, I'm still friends with Trey Wingo uh, today. I, I, I develop relationships with guys like Kirk Herbstreet and Jay Billis. Right. Um, you know, Herbie played for my favorite college football team, and Billis went to my university, so it was easy for me to sycophant my way into those relationships. Yeah. But we did work at the same company. Um, Wingo, Kenny Main, John Anderson, 
uh, a couple of those guys. I, of course, knew the other guys, too. I didn't really work with Berman uh, at all because um, my buddy Aaron Taylor, we shared, we split duties. So he did half the sports and I did half, and he did pro football. So and I didn't know Berman very well at all. I had met him. Um, but I knew, like, the Baseball Tonight guys and the college basketball guys and college football, you know, uh, Fowler and Herb Street and, and the crew that did, and Lee Corso uh, did a ton of the game day stuff. Yeah. So that was fun. I mean, it was after a while you just realize that these guys are just guys looking for, you know, their way up. Uh, at, at, just because even uh, who was it that told me, he goes, listen, just because we're on TV doesn't mean we're not total dicks. Right. Just trust that we're total dicks, right? Yeah. And it sort of took the edge off for me. It was like, all right, I can just treat these guys like guys. Because a lot of people, a lot of ESPN viewers deify those guys because they, you know, they worship them. Yeah, there's certain guys like Berman who, I mean, they become bigger than life and they almost become caricatures. Right. And then there's other, like the guys that you named that you developed relationships with. I, I assume those are guys who, when those cameras turn off, they're, they're eager to get back to being normal guys who have normal relationships with other normal people to whatever, to whatever extent that they can. Uh, and you're right, those guys show up and they're on-air talent. And it's like, this is my dream job. This is all I've ever wanted. Now you get here, well, it's also 100 other people here's dream job. How much airtime right. are you getting? Are you being allowed to expand your repertoire, do the right. same thing over and over again for a decade? The, um, the fight we had to fight was them wanting to be in the Sports Center commercials. Because for many of them, the and for many people, the sports this is Sports Center work was probably more on brand than the show Sports Center was. Right. So they felt like their career was even more elevated and they were more important if they were in spots, just like a lot of athletes right. uh, started to realize. Yeah, it's a rite of passage. It is a rite of passage. Yeah. Um, in 2005, you join Virgin America. Yeah. I'm imagining your interview is you know, with uh, Richard Branson clinging to the to the to a parasail or something. Is that is that about right? <laughs> I met Richard after I got the job. I actually interviewed with Fred Reed, the CEO of, of uh, Virgin USA at the time, soon to be the CEO of Virgin America. Yeah. So Virgin, uh, the Virgin brand uh, can't exist as a Richard Branson owned entity in the U.S. because of Department of Transportation laws against foreign ownership of domestic airlines. It's an old World War II thing, right? right? They were worried that if you owned a American airline and you were some German dude, you'd fly off and you know do what you're going to do. It's a realistic concern, sure. Yeah, it's very realistic. Yeah. So Richard could own, I believe, 25% of the company. So all of the funding had to come from the U.S. So they set up a company, Virgin USA, hired Fred Reed, a former Delta CEO, to be the CEO. And Fred told me that the reason I got the job is because I said my iPod makes me cry. That's, he said, that was the line that convinced what me. What does that mean? Just that I love things that are that work. Right. I just love design. I'm a believer in brand. It just meant that, uh, you know, there's, there's uh, you can find meaning and emotion even in tangible product. Sure. If it, if it changes your life that much for the better. Um, they hired me. I was probably not the right hire for that, for that company, quite honestly, because I was you know, brand guy from ESPN. And I learned quickly that they needed an airline guy. That business is very insular. So I was the only officer in that company. Uh, and I left before Virgin America actually even got off the ground. I was there for the two years prior to launch. I was the only officer that didn't have at least 12 years aviation experience. And I had zero at the time. And it was great. It was one of the best years of my life is building this brand literally from scratch. Obviously, waving the Virgin flag and being lucky enough to say we're a Virgin brand, 
but creating partnerships. I think I was Anomaly's first client. Actually, I knew Justin Barocas, who later married Angie Vieira, um, and met all the founding Anomaly crew before they even moved into their space on Broadway. It was an awesome year doing partnerships and stuff. And then all of a sudden we got certified by the DOT and now the countdown clock started to us launching and everybody inside the company is like, wait a minute, we can't spend seven cents on a blanket. We have to spend four cents on a blanket. And it was like, what happened to the brand guy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, now you're on, you know, you're on a Delta flight frequently, I assume, flying out of Atlanta and you're looking at an incredible in-flight entertainment system and United has them as well. Totally. And and uh, Virgin was really the harbinger of That's the in-flight right. entertainment systems and yeah. you were a big part of designing that. Yeah. So you, I mean, maybe it was helpful that you had some distance from the airline world so that you were able to be ignorant to what wasn't possible. That's true. I mean, that's that's what my role was, was ask the questions that everybody already knew the answers to right. and challenge those answers. Right. I just remember one time we had a, uh, a Justin brokered a meeting between Jonathan Adler and us. Uh, and uh, Jonathan Adler, famous designer, candles and uh, sure. textiles and stuff. And we wanted him to do the design on the blankets. And it really was a decision made between pennies per unit about whether or not we could afford to have his designs on these pieces of materials. And I thought if we're not going to be able to do something like that, then I'm not the right person for this job. Yeah. Right, so I actually left that job. I started. I started getting sick to my stomach in the parking lot before work. It was really, it, the pressure was too great, and I really was not happy. And I had a mortgage in San Francisco and a colicky six-month-old. That was the riskiest move I ever made. Wow. Yeah. You mentioned you mentioned it briefly about being on the client side um, with Wyden as your agency. We'll t we'll get to your time at Wyden, but. What are some of your memories? And again, you, you made mention of it, but what are some of your, your lasting memories, some of um, you know, your joys and frustrations of being a client with Wyden Kennedy as your agency? Mostly joy. I mean, almost all joyous. I, I, I still talk to some of those guys and, and, and some of the ESPN guys, some of the Wyden guys. We talk about the fact that um, there's a woman named Jen Coleman who was the first planner I've ever, I, I, I didn't know that planning was a thing. And I'm not even sure planning was a thing. And I remember they brought her in, they said, here's your planner. And I said, well, Angie, isn't that what you're supposed to do? Like, what are you talking about? You know, uh, and later found out that planning was at the root of every person's success. And, and I'm a big believer in planning right now. I, I'm a massive believer. So learned that there was something above and beyond what an account person's role was and that strategy was literally at the, the apex of all good ideas. Yeah. Um, but we talked about the brief. I, I, this is what I, I still look back fondly on. And we talked about our briefs with Wyden were sitting around and going, I don't know. What do you feel like doing? I don't know. What do you feel like doing? You know, that was our brief. We literally would say to that, that sounds funny. That sounds cool. Guys, what do you want to do for college football this year? You know, and it was so much about the art and not the science back then that it was really fun. Now, there were no guardrails, and sometimes we went too far afield creatively. Uh, there were a couple projects that uh, that we did with Ground Zero. Um, Court Crandall's one of my favorite people that I've ever met. And he and I were like, yeah, well, what? I mean, what's the worst that could happen? Like, we would just really go for it. Um, and they probably weren't smart but they were fun as shit to make. And we had so much fun making some of that work. So 
all of that work, both with Wyden, with Ground Zero, with Bayless Cronin here, uh, working with Jerry. I mean, again, these are lifelong relationships that I made in my time at ESPN. And I, uh, you know, like I said, seminal moment in my life. So you're puking in the parking lot. You, this job is, you know, it's tearing you apart. So the next move was Wyden Kennedy in 2005? Well, the next move was unemployment in San Francisco with a house that I couldn't afford and a wife that I knew I was going to divorce or she knew she was going to divorce me and a baby who wouldn't stop crying. Right. So that was a great, that was a highlight. And then, and then, and then Wyden Kennedy. Yeah. I actually got, uh, I, I got an offer from Apple and from Wyden on the same day. And instead of staying in San Francisco, I how's the, how's the Wyden stock these days? Is it, is it up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If only you'd made that layup and took that Apple job. Easy. Okay. Easy. <laughs> you know, the, the, here's, here's what I, my rationale at the time, to be honest, I, uh, you know, Steve Jobs was alive. I had heard about his relationship with Lee and with that team, and I heard that the decision-making in Apple marketing really boiled down to a couple of people. And if I was going to be in a marketing job at Apple, I'd be just another guy in a marketing job at Apple. But there's only one global account director on Nike at Widening Kennedy job in the whole world. There's only one of those jobs in the world, and that's the job I took. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, because we see people often go from agency side to client side, but... As I kind of like ran through it in my head, you don't see a bunch of that in reverse. And so that was sort of like your decision to make. And that would have been an incredible brand to work for and maybe kind of go on a, on a CMO track. And, you know, you were getting yeah. promoted and you yeah. were experiencing success. But it sounds like even the story you tell about the widened account person not being afraid to speak truth to right. power right. and just creating a, a curiosity about this company and how much fun it must be to work there when you're sort of liberated and not having the shackles of other agencies at that time who feel like, you know, they're in the business of having good meetings and saying yes. Completely. And and the I bought in, I drank the wine and Kool-Aid early days. Yeah. I bought into it when I was a client. Again, I met some people that had, that had a huge impact on me. Uh, a guy named Tom Blessington was the MD in New York for a short time while I was a client uh, at uh, ESPN and then was the MD in Portland when I was looking for the job. I actually got um, kind of hooked up with Tom knowing that there may be a job opportunity there. So uh, when I got to Wyden, I was already a believer in Wyden. It didn't take me a long time to understand that this place was special. And um, like I said, there aren't many agency jobs that are coveted like, especially if you're a guy like me that grew up around sort of sports and entertainment, like a real, uh, my whole career was in sports and entertainment, basically. And there is no better sports and entertainment property than Nike and no better agency to service that business than Widen. So there really was. That was the top of the food chain as far as jobs go. And so, yeah, I did it. I mean, I've had a lot of Widen creatives on the show. I've had Jeff and Mike Byrne and Susan Hoffman. And I think the question from outsiders is always like, what is that alchemy at Widen that fosters such a consistently high quality of work that other agencies they don't only struggle to achieve, but then once they achieve it, they struggle to maintain it. Can you put your finger on that? No. Yeah. No. Dan. Yeah. You know, I mean, there, there's sort of no better instinct in <laughs> any industry than Dan's instinct for good communications. You know, uh, his relationship to the work was sometimes very hands-on and sometimes fairly distant, but his fingerprint was on everything we did. Um, the... The warmth of that culture, I mean, just the, the 
t connectedness and togetherness. Even though there was competition among team uh, teams to get their work made or whatever, there was always this feeling of uh, like you were on a ship and nobody else was in that, even in that ocean, yeah. you know, there's a difference about being at that place in any place I have been before or since, quite honestly. So I can't put my finger on the magic. I remember I was on a panel once and somebody asked me what the secret, this is after a number of years of working there, by yeah. the way. Somebody said, what's the secret sauce of Wyden? And I said, planning is the secret sauce of Wyden. Because I do truly believe in shit in, shit out. I yeah. think that if you're going to get a brief that is completely locked in and signed in blood and, and buyable by both the client and the creative team, then good work's going to happen, right? But I think that if you start kind of just ham and egg in the brief and just hope for good work, it's not as easy as you think. Yeah. It's a fascinating part of our business, which is that relationship between the creative director and the account director. Um, and it can take a lot of forms, you know, depending on what agency you're at and the individual personalities involved. Uh, and there's a lot of different versions of that relationship that can work, right. depending on where you're at. What is your personal favorite version of that relationship? What does it look like when it's when it's working for you at its best? Best creative director, account guy relationship. Yeah. Uh, letting each other sort of swim in your in each other's lane, you know. Yeah. Having a creative director honestly asking me what I think about the work, having me ask the creative director what I should do about a difficult client moment or conversation, uh, partnership and and friendliness. I, I I really don't think you're you are your role in anything. I think you're a human being, and if you find a good vibe with another human being, regardless of what you're already great at, you're going to be better at those things together because you like each other and trust each other. So I've had relationships with creative directors that have not been very rewarding because I don't think we did a great job of being... Uh, of knowing each other well, trusting each other well, or being friends. And I've had relationships with creatives whom I think may not have been the best creatives in the world, but we got better work out of each other because of that uh, relationship that we had, the personal part of that. Yeah, there's there's no way you're going to be an account lead without your personal creative taste bleeding into the process. Right. And that can be a great thing, just like it's a great thing when your creative says – Hey, like, what time's the call with the client? Why don't I hop on there as well, and and I'll secretly be the best account guy in the room, right? And you can secretly be the person selling the creative in the room because that's the most unexpected way for this person to disarm this person who's not sure whether to say yes or not. Um, at at Wyden, did you feel invited into the creative process, or or did it feel more often like the job was to protect creatives from? you know, a process without interfering with it? That's a great question and all, and different. I grew into earning that a little bit, feeling more part of the creative process. When I started, um, this creative person shall go nameless, but I remember my first meeting, internal meeting, and I was the, you know, I had a, you know, I'm like, all right, boys, there's a new sheriff, right? I'm the global account director on Nike. And I remember sitting in a creative review. So first thing I ever looked at, Creative directors, you know, they push play on the work, and I looked, and I started making comments like a client would make comments, right? I started questioning the insight in, at some places, actually making some production-oriented comments just over my skis, right? Especially at a place where creativity is kind of the thing that butters the bread of this company. Yeah. And I was, you know, again, I was like trying to be, and uh, the creative director goes, at the end, he goes, ha, 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 yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
Because they called me in to ask me what I thought, and then by the time I was done talking, they were like, yeah, no, 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 we don't, that's not what we meant. Yeah. We didn't mean for you to say anything. Yeah, either right. you like it, or, or you if like you don't it. like it, just pretend you like it. That's yeah. right. Look, it's toxic both ways. It's toxic when account people feel like their job is like, okay, I'm going to play the role of our client on his worst day. Right. And if you can survive me, yeah. then we can present yeah. this work. It's like, cool, so we're going to... You know, we're going to walk in there and they're going to feel that we have, that we've, you know, we're preemptively apologizing for every part of this idea while we're selling it because we've worried about every issue that you might come up with. Um, and so we don't look like we have any confidence in our own work. And it's also toxic when creatives don't trust their account counterparts. And it's just like, look, you just stay out of the way. I'm an artist, but right. I didn't want to move to France and be an artist. I still want direct deposit every two weeks. Exactly. So they're going to subsidize my art, and you, you just need to like that. That's so funny you say that. I did have a moment where one of the CDs I was working with said, don't they fucking know that this is art we are making? This is art. And I said, no, it's commerce. And it can be disguised as art. Yeah. And if it is well disguised as art, we get paid. Yeah. And if it's not, we don't. So if you want to be an artist, do your thing. Yeah, it can yeah. be both. I mean, you talk about being out over your skis. You know, when you join a legendary agency, um, your job is at very least to continue the legacy and and that hopefully to elevate the yeah. legacy. Yeah. Did you feel that pressure? Was it palpable when you took the job at, at especially taking over an account like Nike that was, it's the most valuable account to work on now for creatives, and right. it was the most valuable account when you took it over in 2005. 100%. Yeah. 100%. And I loved it. I loved the challenge of it. I loved the microscope uh, that was on me. I had uh, I had uh, a couple weeks into it, I had an out-of-body experience where I cha I challenged Dan in a in a sit-down meeting. We, we, had, we were having some real issues with a certain piece of business, and we had like a real kind of... Power. If you ever been up to the fifth floor in, at Widening Kennedy, outside of Dan's office, there's that big rug and beautiful furniture. And we were all sitting around. It was like 12 of us. And we were kind of like, you know, what are we going to do? And it was a big deal. Dan was there. John Jay was there. Dave Luer was there. All Everybody was there. And Dan said something. And I don't know what dude got into me, but I found myself disagreeing with Wyden. And turn, and then the more I talked, the less I was sitting in a circle full of colleagues. I was floating above this room, looking down at some red-faced asshole talking and disagreeing with one. I, I didn't know what I was saying, and I just lost my train. And I reined it in enough to stop talking. And the same Jeff Williams, we got you know somebody said something and somebody said something, and Williams goes, "Well, I don't know." He could tell I was just a lot. He goes. I kind of want to hear what Spence has to say again. <laughs> Wyden puts his hand on my knee and goes, I dare you. I mean, I experienced it at this at Crispin too, which is emotions can run high and even to a humiliating degree when it's very clear that everyone there wants the exact same thing. Exactly. Like we all want to make work that reverberates in culture right. that's famous that we can point to and say, I made that. And that sounds simple, and it sounds like, well, that's the goal of every agency, and everyone says that. Yeah. But not everyone actually believes that. There's a lot of people at a lot of agencies that are they're just trying to survive the day. They're just trying to have a good meeting. If we have a 1,000 good meetings and don't make one goddamn thing this year, don't tell anybody, but I can live with that. Right. And, and you know, my takeaway from talking to the, to the people at, at Wyden, and I experienced it at Crispin and during my time there, is just like, you know, if, if we're all rowing the boat in the same direction, then there's sort of room for that tension because it's not personal. It's sure. it's in the service of wanting the same thing. Sure. 
Yeah. And that thing is the legacy that you're trying not to fuck up. Yeah. How, how, how dare somebody as, you know, individual as you or as I come into a place that has such a great history of making great work and try to make our mark independent of the success of the place. All we're trying to do is continue to row the boat in the same direction, yeah. right? But I accepted all of that tension and created a lot of it, I'm sure, myself, right? I accept it. I mean, that's what you sign up for when you work at a, at a place like that. Uh, I will say that the Nike business was very, very difficult because of the microscope. But the Coca-Cola business, which I later worked on after I worked on Nike there, I mean, I worked on Coke for longer than I worked on Nike yeah. when I was at Wyden, is the most difficult piece of business in the world to work on, yeah. in the world. No two ways about it. It's the most famous brand in the world, and the, the number of eyes here in Atlanta on that work, especially on Brand Coke, um, is incredible. It's incredible to try to get work made. I give all the credit in the world to people who can successfully make very good, profound work for Coke and still make a little money doing it. Because yeah. it takes a long time. It takes a long time to get work done. Okay, let's take a break to talk about my friends at Wave Organics. You've probably been hearing a lot about the benefits of CBD oil. My family and I have personally experienced astonishing results from CBD, and we get it from Wave Organics. Wave CBD oil comes exclusively from hemp grown in Colorado on their certified organic family farm. They oversee every part of the process from cultivation and harvesting to extraction and distillation, creating high quality CBD products that their customers can trust. Wave offers a variety of products, including drops, creams, capsules, even CBD products for your pets. Go to wave.com. That's W-A-A-Y-B.com and get 20% off your first order when you use the promo code T-T-O. To that end, if the ultimate product of a creative agency is creative output, and if an account manager is essential to that process, I've always been curious, like, why don't more account managers in search of jobs present a real in the same way that a creative would. I mean, you almost never see that. Why is that? I have one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because I think that, that most people believe that the role of the account person is to run the business, right, and to be the relationships guy. Right. Uh, I, I am not a creative guy. I'm, I'm a decent editor. I think I can take work that exists and make it better. Right. Bad work into good work and good work into great work. I hope I can. I'm not a creative guy from a blank piece of paper, though. I'm far from it. Right. Um, but my level of participation into uh, the success of the creative product is really important to me, right? And so if there's something that I've been a part of that I have helped craft, even if it's helping the client recognize how good it is, I'm sure as shit going to try to own that thing or help, you know, use it to my advantage when it comes to having a reel. It is not a common practice, though, right? Account people write it on their resume. I was part of this. I was part of this. I was part of this. But more important to that is I made this much money. Here are my margins. I grew the business by this, right. et cetera. Yeah, I think... I think that's the first thing that employers are looking for, but you're right. I mean, if the, the output is creativity and maybe the maybe the account manager is maybe their heart is in the right place. They're thinking, you know, even though this work doesn't get sold, made and produced without me, you know, the vision at the heart of it wasn't mine. I wasn't there in the edit. I wasn't I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it 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 always surprises me when when uh, agencies hire account people and it's like, you know, by the way, that creative director 
you know, he, he or she may have come up with that idea, but there were a number of things that had to happen outside of that person's purview for this thing to exist. They still take credit for it. So should you. Yeah, that's a great, I mean, that's a great point. You know, you asked me about the relationship and he, this guy and I didn't get along great for my entire tenure, but toward the end of my widened tenure with Mark Fitzloff, uh, he and I are very similar, by the way, both a little bit hot-headed, both a little bit uh, confident, if that's the word, um, sure of ourselves, all of that. Um, you know, when he would say to me, I want you to see this uh, when I'm looking at it, or I think I want you to be in this edit, not because a client's going to be on the phone, because I want your opinion. And I would say to him, dude, I need you on this phone call. Man, this is not a phone call I want to make. You've got to be here. That's when you know the relationship works. And so I want to go back a little bit. It's not only about being bros, right? Because I think we were good enough friends, and certainly the respect was there. But we really saw something in each other, um, enough so that we knew that each of us could be better when the other person was around. And I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, what you're describing requires vulnerability. And by the way, I mean, you know, you get older and you start learning that those are tricks. Like, gosh, I, I'd like to have a better relationship with this person. Maybe I don't even want to show him the work, but if I ask him to come look at the work, it's going to change the way he and I interact. And maybe he's going to start thinking about me a little differently too. Um, and it's just this, like, it's the ultimate expression of trust. Man, I need you on this phone call totally. versus like, because the, the, the opposite of that is like, what is the bare minimum I have to interact with you yeah, in, in order, order to serve my agenda? Check that box. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you, you know, for obvious reasons, uh, Wyden has a lot of lifers. Yeah. How hard was it for you to leave Wyden knowing that, you know, you would not be a lifer and what was the appeal of joining CPB in 2014 as global managing director that, that had that magnetism to pull you out of a great job? They paid me a ton of money. CPB. Thank you for your honesty. They, they Crispin, uh, I got offered the job by Miles Nadal in 10 minutes yeah. inside of his office, and he was shoeless with his feet on the coffee table. Yeah. That's how that worked. Uh, I left Wyden because I didn't really have another thing at Wyden that was right for me. Co- Global Coke disappeared when I was there. I mean, the client. There's no such thing at the time as Global Coke. There was no... There was no business there. There was no money. Everything was basically now forced into regions, right? right? So whereas I would have global clients, they all kind of either left or migrated over to North America, and then the the entity of Global Coke went away. And, man, the the rain really got to us, too. It just kind of got to us. The Pacific Northwest, it was tough. And the darkness and, you know, as much as I love Portland and it holds a dear place and I miss that place and those people a lot, it was definitely time for a change. Plus, my my life and family and most of my friends were east and all of her life was east. And being in Portland, you're far away from a lot of that stuff. Yeah. So... We, uh, I got this opportunity to meet with Miles. Uh, it was not about Crispin at the time. It was about MDC. And he said, what do you want to do? Where do you want to live? I think he probably knew he was about to get fired, but he just, whatever, took a chance on me. And I, I just made it up in the room. Yeah, I just made it up. And I said, what do you think if, um, you know, I try to bring some of the globalness that I had at Widen Kennedy to Crispin and, and you know, take on a global role. And he said, where do you want to live? And I said, well, we're trying to get east. And at the time, it was definitely not going to be New York. I had already done that. So we just chose Miami. So I was based in Miami, but I didn't really work for Miami. I just, that's where I lived. Um, and then the whole uh, MDC 
like I don't know that there was a lot of a lot of oddness toward the end of my tenure there that was just not that great. Yeah, Crispin but, in 2014 was an agency definitely in transition, and I'm sure it held a different place in your mind and in your heart when you were at Wyden. And you know they grab a piece of running business briefly, and there's a really good, you know, healthy competition between Wyden and Crispin for about a decade there. In 2014, do you go into that job with both eyes open? I did. Yeah, I did. I really thought that what I was going into. At the time, I think the Crispin that I joined is different than the Crispin where you worked. I really do. Yeah. And a lot of it had to do with that sort of, you know, that leader that wasn't there then when I was there. Yeah. So I thought I was going into another widen. And it just the, – the environment there was not the same. It was very different. And I thought I could make uh, the same kind of impact. Well, I, I did, I think. I mean, you know, we got there and we – went to Hong Kong a hundred times and we won the infinity business. That was the biggest single piece of business that Crispin had ever won. Yeah. And then lo and behold, it turned into a very difficult business to work on. So, um, yeah, my tenure there was short. I still keep in touch with a few people from uh, that company and have good memories of a couple of good moments there. And I certainly liked a lot of individuals, but it it wasn't a highlight for me, quite honestly. Isn't that funny? You said the infinity thing, lo and behold, was a lot of work. You know, you go to... We go to these agencies and we strive to win an account like that. Can It can change the fate of a company. It can right. change the fate of people's lives, right. get people promoted. And we're also just competitive people and we – Winning is better than losing, and yeah. you know you're in the you're in the throes of this competition with other agencies, right. and then you win, and it's like tell them what they've won, Johnny. Yeah. You know, it's like <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like what you've won. You've now run a marathon. You've run through the finish line. The finish line is actually the starting line of a no- to a super marathon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, I say this all the time. I want to win the business. I just don't want to have the business. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, we wanted to win bad, and we did, <clears throat> and. Yeah, there was even some weirdness in winning that business, too. We knew we had won it for three months before we were allowed to talk about it. We also were working on it for three months before we signed the contract that we had won it. So by the time the client said, hey, guess what? You've officially won the business. We're like, woo. Yeah. We already knew how hard it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah, Jerry Seinfeld uh, interviewed Howard Stern and on his, the Comedians and Cars show. And he was like, Howard, why don't you? It's like, you can do anything you want to do. Why don't you do this show? Why don't you do this television show? Why don't you create this movie? And Howard Stern's uh, response just will always stay with me. He goes, you know, as a guy who's worked really hard and know what it takes to make a successful show and know what it takes to make a successful movie, what I've come to realize is that everybody likes press release day. Everyone likes, like, Spence Kramer is the new XYZ That's of so-and-so right. and so-and-so. Right. Everyone likes that celebratory day. What people don't like is a week later, a month later, <laughs> yeah. a year later, doing the work. And especially when you're putting your name on it and when people have a certain expectation about what you're going to deliver, all you're going to do is disappoint them more the higher you set that expectation based on you totally. know, what you've achieved to get to that point. Yeah, I mean, the, the reality of having to do the stuff is way less exciting. Yeah. It's kind of like a relationship. You know, you start the relationship and everything is hats and horns for, uh, you know, as long as that honeymoon period lasts. And then there's that every fucking Tuesday morning you wake up with bad breath and that's it, <laughs> right? That's your life now. Yeah. yeah. Um, you've been at JWT Atlanta in the role of CEO for about three years now. Uh, what are some of the specific skills and abilities that you were conscious needed the most development uh, in order for you to be an effective CEO? Because there's certain skills that, you know, we've talked about it at the companies that you worked at that, you know, in a certain way you were sort of 
training your whole life for this moment unbeknownst to you, but there's other right. skills that maybe you, you can't even develop until you've been on the job. Yeah. The, the, the role of CEO is a role of vulnerability, uh, interestingly. I didn't, I didn't think it was, but it really has turned into that, i.e. I, recognizing the things that you're not great at. And it's okay not to be great at certain things. And knowing that if you surround yourself with great people who are better at those things than you are, and you can somehow positively contribute to, the, to their success, then everybody succeeds. Yeah. When I got there, I thought I would have to be the best thing at every, per at every role, the best person in every department, in every meeting. And I just, it gets exhausting trying to be that way. And we work on the Marine Corps, and you know that if you are in charge of a group of men and women in the Marine Corps, if you're a captain or if you're a lieutenant or even if, you know, you're, you have any role in leadership whatsoever, you literally have to be the best person at whatever task you are doing with that group of Marines. So you're in charge of your battalion or your command in any case, and you've got to run that fucking thing faster than anybody else, and you have to lift more weight, and you have to do anything. And so I, I didn't know much about the Marines when I got there. But I thought that, that that parallel existed as a CEO because I'm the CEO, right? Yeah. And then I realized I'm not, first of all, I'm not the best at any of it. I'm, I'm classic jack of all trades, master of none, right? I knew a little bit about a lot of things. Um, the thing I needed to learn the most about was finance. Yeah. That was absolutely a thing that I was, was a weak spot for me. I mean, I had run big global pieces of business and I knew my way around how to be a profitable business uh, account. But how do you be a profitable company? There's a lot more that comes into it. And so the one thing that I was, I think I'm probably the best at among the things that I do is the relationship piece. Yeah. I think the, you know, the leadership part, I, I, I've said this to, I have a lot of people ask me what's the most rewarding part of your job. And it's simple. It's kind of like what I tell my kids. If you can positively affect any interaction you have with another person, you've won. Right? That's it. You just make them feel better about that interaction than worse. And if you take that to a tiny moment where somebody's having a problem and you help them out of that problem or you help them discover the solution rather than give it to them, or if you're sitting in a room full of 25 people and you're convincing a client that to like your agency enough to give you that business, you've had a material positive effect on that relationship, however large or small. So that's I wake up every day thinking about that. How can I make every person I talk to feel better about the fact that we've talked than not. When I was a, a creative director at CPB, I would see creatives who'd go on to take CCO jobs at other agencies, um, and I would see a consistent sort of failure assurance, which is that they would go and they'd say like, okay, I'm here now, and we're gonna try to turn this into the CPB of Texas or the CPB of San Diego. And, you know, the system would just sort of reject this outsider who was trying to turn it into something that it was not. Did it take restraint to show up and say, my job is not to turn JWT Atlanta into Wyden Kennedy Atlanta. Right. It's to turn it into the best possible JWT Atlanta. Yeah, Atlanta. although if you asked everybody that I work with, they got tired of me talking about Wyden and Kennedy right. because it's hard not to. Yeah. You know, at Wyden, we used to do it this way. Well, yeah, whoopee shit, you know. But those um, experiences matter and and – Exporting some of those qualities can be really beneficial to a company. Creativity as the fuel for growth is something I will believe in forever, yeah. right? Growth does not fuel growth. 
Smart business does not fuel growth. Efficiency and profitability does not fuel growth. Great ideas fuel growth, and I will always believe that. So I don't apologize for some of those things that I brought to uh, JWT from from Wyden because those are good lessons, and that's why Wyden is what Wyden is, right? right? Um, I also uh, had to really bite the bullet because for the first time, I mean, Crispin's a Crispin's a public company inside of a holding company, MDC, but the the uh, dynamics there are very different than JWT inside of WPP. So I had to learn to play the game inside of WPP, and I'm still learning every day. Sure, it's a it's a different company now than it was three and a half years ago. Right. Yeah, a lot has changed. You know, you talk about the the um, the imperative of relationship cultivation. And then we talked about the account creative relationship. Uh, what's your role in, in maintaining the health of those relationships between creative department, account department, and planning department from the from the perch of CEO? You name it. Yeah. I mean, whatever it takes. You know, I I would like to think that I'm appropriately hands on when the situation needs it, and appropriately hands off when I shouldn't be hands on. Right. So. Um, my job is not to make sure everybody gets along. That's a that's not that's not that important to me. My job is to make sure everybody is fulfilled. And I think that if you're fulfilled and engaged, then to your metaphor, you're all rowing in the same direction. Yeah. So if the relation, if there is a relationship breakdown, and man, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a room with me on one side of the table and uh, the two people who are arguing on the other side of the table and me brokering some, you know, detente between these two. I've done <laughs> it um, for sure. And I have played chief people officer and chief everything officer, chief, you know, babysitting officer, as well as chief cheerleader. Um, but all my job really is to do is, like I said, to make sure that people are, um, are happy. I think happy people make good work, and I think good work makes people happy, and that's really what it boils down to. Yeah. Right? I love what you say about the difference between happiness and fulfillment. And, you know, fulfillment means some days you're going to go home and you're going to try to pull the steering wheel off of your car. And it's going to make it all that more gratifying when you get to the place that right. was such a struggle to get to. But, I mean, I'll get the phone call from a creative team that I love going like, I mean, you know, man, it's just like we're trying to sell this idea and the account person did this and did that. And my response is like, there's nothing that I'm going to tell you that's going to make you feel better other than take comfort in knowing that since the beginning of time, you know, dogs have chased cats and <laughs> guys in your position have called guys in my position to complain about guys in their position. That's I right. say guys and gals, but like, this is it, man. There is something, though, in my uh, advanced age uh, about perspective that I feel like has helped me a lot, too, which is the we're not saving lives here. <laughs> um, you've been in Atlanta uh, for a couple years now. I, I think the joke for... 50 years is big time advertising people move to Atlanta in search of a better life. And then right when they get there, they promptly proclaim like this is an inflection point for Atlanta. Atlanta is about to explode as this center of creative excellence. Uh, what have been some of your observations about living in Atlanta these first couple of years? And, and are we at an inflection point in the city for being a, a center of creative excellence in advertising? I, I love Atlanta. I love it. I hated it until I lived here. Hated it. So when I met Jen, she was living here and I was in New York, and my only experiences with, with, with Atlanta were weekends in our dating and in, in our courtship, and I fucking hated it. And then I was in Portland, and I had to come here for Coke, and I hated it. 
Uh, and so I thought, why are we moving to Atlanta? And then I moved here, and now I realize that Atlanta is like the world's most – it's not a transition city. It's a transplant city. There's, you're saying there's more than just an airport and one corporate – we pass judgment on a city because we don't like the airport. We don't like the hotel near the airport, and we don't like the corporate headquarters. We're there to – 7585, yeah. the hotel, the headquarters, <laughs> yeah. and Atlanta airport. That's yeah. exactly right. And maybe an occasional dinner. Um I love it. I love it here. I think it's, notwithstanding the traffic, it's easy to get around. It's easy to navigate. The cost of living is great. The people are nice. The weather's great. It rains here way more than I thought it would. Yeah. By and large, the weather here is great. I think we have passed our creative inflection point, and it's not due to the advertising community. Yeah. It's the film community, the music community, restaurants, and art that have really changed the fortunes of this city. And I think the agency world is right there. I, we're Hopefully... We're, we're there. Uh, we'll probably never be the hot shit agency city that we want to be, but we're better than I think most people think we are. Yeah. But based on what you're, I mean, it, it, to be a great advertising city, I mean, the first most important thing is a talent pool. And you'd think that all those ships that you described, you know, the, the Silicon Valley of the South and the, you know, the Hollywood of the South right. and, and all the production and all the art and, and food that has been elevated just in the past few years here would sort of, you know, raise that tide for the talent pool. And then I think the other thing that dawns on me is like, you know, the the key imperative in our industry now is is greater diversity. And here is a city with a legitimate black middle class where you have the the historically black colleges, um, and you have. And then the other part is like, you know, they say hip hop culture is pop culture, yeah. and Atlanta culture is hip hop culture. So right. like, you have a confluence of all these things that would lead you to believe that there's a lot of untapped young multicultural talent here that would love to have these jobs that we offer in our industry. Right. And it feels like it's still an arm's length away, but it seems like we can make up that gap quickly if we're if we're serious about it. God, I hope so. I, I in fact, I I had an idea a couple years ago that has come to fruition that is exactly in that vein. It was in the, you know, in the run up to the Trump election, too many young black boys were being murdered by too many white men with badges, right? And the racial divide in this country was at its, in my lifetime, at its worst. Um, I was a kid during the civil rights movement, but as an adult, it was, I mean, it would bring me to tears. And I'm, you know, my, my friends call me left of Abby Hoffman when it comes to my politics, but, uh, I, which also shows you how old I am, um, but I decided that is there anything I can do about this? I was frustrated that there was nothing I could do about the state of affairs in the country, and there's probably true. But I'm a CEO of a big agency in a big city. You know, Atlanta is, uh, I had this conversation with somebody recently, Atlanta is the most uh, integrated city in America, and it's also the most segregated city in America, if you look at those wow. two metrics independently in terms of the black middle class, right? right? Um, so I called up the CEOs of three other agencies, and we formed a coalition called Advertising for Change, and we are actually doing something exactly that. We are trying to lift the talent pool in the DNI community among the agency population here. We want Atlanta to be the best, most inclusive agency city in this country, and we want advertising to be the most diverse and inclusive industry in the city of Atlanta. 
And it's been great. It's we're going on three years now. It's fantastic. Yeah. And yeah, we we're starting relationships with the HBCUs. We've got a great deal going with the four A's and their mate program, multicultural advertising internship program. Yeah. We're about to start a relationship with the Coretta Scott King Young Women's Leadership Academy. So yeah, there's a but we're still not doing enough. I mean, we we've got to better represent the communities where we live. We got to better represent the constituents of the clients that we serve. I mean, if you if you think about the Marine Corps, when you and I were growing up, the Marine Corps was a bunch of Southern whites, yeah. right? That's really what you thought about was who jo- who was joining the Marines. And now the Marine Corps looks more like America. Yeah. So we got to we have to look more like the Marine Corps, which looks more like America, in order to service their business better. Um, switching gears, earlier this year, JWT and Wonderman integrated into one entity called yeah. Wonderman Thompson. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Well, I can tell you it was sad when we heard about the news. Yeah, you know. J. Walter Thompson is the oldest and biggest advertising agency in the history of our business. Uh, Losing the J. Walter part of J. Walter Thompson was gut-wrenching. You know, we have, I I think the office of uh, uh, JWT in Atlanta is the oldest office by average age in the country. We have some people, we have three or four people in their 70s. We have four or five people in their 60s in our office. So they've been at this company for 30, some, some of them more than 40 years. Wow. And so losing that was heartbreaking for them. Um, Once we got over that, holy shit, we're merging, and what does this mean, and are we all going to lose our jobs, we very quickly realized that we were going to be a better company because of Wonderman. And it, it is showing itself to be true every single day. We have pitched and won two pieces of business as Wonderman Thompson, sort of DBA Wonderman Thompson. The legals are still being worked out. But, you know, when you add the sort of legendary CRM and direct marketing and um, uh, loyalty aspect of what Wonderman is known for, plus the Wonderman Data Management Group, which is probably the world's best data company. You add that to an old school agency storytelling company, uh, we're a pretty hard company to beat when it comes to what clients are looking for now, particularly on the data side. And so of the two pitches that we have entered uh, as a joint team, we've won them both. And I, 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 we would not have won either if we weren't Wonderman Thompson. Yeah. And then you guys are just sort of, you know, the JWT had been around for so long and there's, you know, there's the bedrock of certain values that are in place that you talked about drinking the Kool-Aid at Wyden and a company right. that's been around for over 100 years like JWT is going to have a Kool-Aid of its own. Mm. And so what's sort of been some of the process of, you know, Wonderman's been around for a long time too, and they have their values in place and you have your values and and merging values and merging cultures. Has that been particularly challenging? It's been, it's it, you know, what they, they were very intentional with this merger to not call it a merger. Yeah. They, they were trying not to force two cultures to live simultaneously. What they, what they basically have said and what we're trying to do is create a new company. Right. So we're identifying new values. We've got a new mission as a company. We are becoming something that neither of us was before. Yes, it is because we bring different expertises to the, to the playing field, but it's, um, it's the new version of that. It's yeah. how we describe ourselves in that way, and we're still learning, by the way. Yeah. We're still learning what we are. You know, our mission is to grow, uh, and our mission is to serve ambitious clients. Um, and the question is, well, who who is us? What are we selling, right? So we're identifying that as we go. And we've got, you know, we've got some superpowers. I think that other agencies may or may not have, but the combination of those things has worked pretty well so far. Yeah. We end most of these conversations with the same three questions. Okay. The first is, 
What is the single word or phrase of advertising jargon that makes your skin crawl the most? Surprise and delight. Mm, that's a yeah. good one. Kill me. Kill me. Bonus points on surprise and delight is when surprise and delight is used as a noun, which is, uh, yeah, we're, we're, going to, we're going to do a surprise and delight. <laughs> What's our surprise and delight moment? Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, I've had enough of that one. That's really good. Yeah. That's probably not going to ever get topped. Yeah. That's the best one. Um, in a presentation of your work to a client, what is the most horrifying response you ever received? Uh, <laughs> horrifying. Uh, our first presentation to a client that we ended up winning in a new business pitch was uh, – the group of clients started packing their bags and standing up as I was doing the emotional wrap up to the meeting. <laughs> as I was doing the, you know, the five minute. So here's where here, you know, show them what you tell them what you're going to tell them, yeah. tell them, and then tell them what you told them. As I was doing the tell them what you told them moment, they were literally packing their stuff and talking to each other and standing up. And so all of my people are looking at me like, okay, this is his moment to lock it down, and they were basically out the door. And, yeah. But you ended up getting the business. Horrifying. Later at dinner, they're like, look, Bachelorette, after the final rose, was about to start. We're big fans of the show. We had to get home. Yeah, it was, it was a perfectly we, logical when they When they finally left, we looked at each other and we're like, you're fucking joking, right? Like, that <laughs> that didn't just happen. Like, this is this is my moment, right. right? This is it. Yeah, you were in front of a mirror at 6 a.m. rehearsing this speech. <laughs> I was. I wasn't rehearsing that speech. Like, hey. Hey, I'm still talking. <laughs> and the final question is called the one that got away. It could be from ESPN, from Virgin, from Wyden. What is your favorite idea that, for whatever reason, it's just it never got made, but it still occupies a place in your heart? Well, I don't think they would. Uh, I don't think they would hate me for saying this, but when when we pitched the World Cup for Coca Cola in. For the 2014 World Cup, we actually won the business in April of 2011, and so the work we didn't start making work until April of 2013. So we had 24 months of ones that got away. Right. We had five completely different campaigns for the World Cup, the biggest single marketing spend in the history of the Coca-Cola company. And we presented five different campaigns to them. So everyone was better and more integrated and more world-changing than the last. And we ended up making a great campaign, one of my favorite things I've ever done, um, called the World's Cup for Coke. And we found these communities that used football, soccer, as the, as the thing that brought the community out of uh, difficult circumstances. And so the World's Cup was, was something that I'm extremely proud of. But... We presented a, you know, this sort of digital idea, this kind of game. It was almost like the world scavenger hunt for Coca-Cola, and it was insane and ahead of its time. And God, I can't really remember it, so it was probably not the total one that got away. But I just remember being frustrated with my good pal Wendy Clark going, "Fucking buy something for God's <laughs> sakes, please!" And you know, that's one of the hardest parts in our business. We talked about that sort of tell them what they won, Johnny moment of like <laughs> you win a piece of Olympic business or World Cup business or. Even the Super Bowl, and you know, so it's like cool. So 
uh, you know, it's, so it's in three years. So <laughs> exactly. let's get going. But it will be in, just know that for the first two and a half years, it'll be impossible for us to say yes because of the lack of urgency. And then we'll really get serious. And if, if you think this hurts now, just wait until we're six months out. I just remember working with our team in Brazil at the time because the World Cup was in Brazil. And yeah. so our Widen Sao Paulo was very instrumental in uh, in working on that business. They were the, basically lead creative agency on that business. And the CD at the time was just devastated when one of the first or second, I don't remember which one it was, when one of them died, I go, dude, don't worry. Yeah. You you aren't going to recognize the thing we produce. Yeah, we're it pawing at each other right now. It doesn't exist at this point. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, Spence, you've had a fascinating career, man, uh, that we can all learn a lot from. And I appreciate you joining me today and sharing some of your experiences and your wisdom. And it's great getting to know you. You too, man. That was really my pleasure. Thanks. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much to Spence. Thank you to JSM Music and the executive producer of this podcast, Jeff Fiorello. Special thanks to Acoustech in Atlanta for facilitating this episode. And if you're liking the pod, as always, please rate it, write a review, share it with a colleague or friend. And until we talk again, peace. Peace.